become the beautiful artwork and treasure of another person. It's the eyes of the artist that makes the difference. While someone sees that old refrigerator as something to be destroyed or gotten rid of, and apparently they don't want to pay to get it hauled away, so they chuck it in the river. And the artist sees it as the torso of a statue or a spaceship. And with tender and patient skill, the trash is transformed into something beautiful. Now the parallels to Christianity are somewhat obvious. And I'm sure on that night, many, many years ago, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus felt that their life had gone into the trash heap. The disciples saw nothing but darkness as the light of life, as John has referred to Jesus, had, in their opinion, gone out. I'm sure Mary Magdalene, having been rescued once from a life in the dump, now felt that life was headed back in that direction. Her heart was broken, and she must have felt as if she had just died. But as she wept her way to Jesus' tomb, early in the morning, while it was still dark, she was about to find out that Jesus' business this day was very different. Her life was about to move from the trash heap to the art gallery because Jesus was in the business of the conquering of death. Let's start again at verse 1, the conquering of death. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. Remember, John is writing this. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, probably because John was much younger. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John begins with a reference to Mary Magdalene. All of the Gospels tell us that this lady was at the tomb early in the morning. Matthew says she was accompanied by the other Mary. Mark mentions these two and adds Salome. Luke speaks of the two Marys and Joanna. John, of course, mentions none of the others. He does quote her using the word we... But right now he's concentrating on Mary Magdalene, as it was Mary Magdalene who first saw the risen Christ. And so we start with Mary at the tomb. The text tells us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. The Greek here is a little different. John 20, the Greek is actually somewhat difficult. 
Uh, probably not for Dave Doris, since he's taking Greek, he would go right through it very easy. For the rest of us, it'd be really hard. Well, not for Rich either, but for, for all the rest of us. But the Greek here is a little different, because John uses several present tenses. And it's as if he's saying, this happened now, and now this happened, and it was right now, right here in front of us now. It's as if these events are still vividly clear in his memory, and he's seeing it as he describes it. And John doesn't say why Mary was there. But from the other Gospels, it's clear that the women were bringing spices to place with the body. The burial on Good Friday, which we talked about last Sunday, it must have been rather hurried. And they want to make sure the burial was completed appropriately and with all due reverence. So they brought their spices, their own tribute to Jesus to add to what Nicodemus had provided on Friday. It is possible that Nicodemus hadn't had enough time to use all the spices that he'd brought. Remember, he'd brought about 75 pounds of spices. And so the woman may have wanted to finish the job. However, when Mary arrives, we're told that she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, normally, in those days, the stone was large and round, and it sat in a groove. Remember, the tomb was cut into the rock, and it was in, a, in a, the, like basically the base of a hill, and there was a garden there, and they would have this large, round, sort of wheel-looking rock, and they would cut a groove in front of it so you could roll the rock in front of the tomb and seal it. And uh, then it could be rolled away from the front of the tomb in order to enter it since the tombs were constantly being reused. When the Bible talks about someone being buried with their fathers, that's literal. It's also metaphorical, but it's literal because they would go in and basically push all the bones to the back and put the next person in there. So you literally were buried with your fathers. And then on the next shelf where uh, your mother had been buried, they would kind of push her to the back and put you in. And so literally it would be generations and generations and generations of people placed in the same tomb. And so that's why the rock had to be you had to be able to roll it away. It wasn't permanently sealed. But notice here that John doesn't say the stone is rolled away. He says it's taken away. And the verb John uses here means something like lifted up as though the stone was lifted out of its groove. And what has taken place is no ordinary phenomenon, but the result of an exercise of divine power. The stone had been moved in an extraordinary fashion. And here John uses the perfect tense to indicate permanence. The stone has been rolled away forever. A closed tomb has no more relevance to Jesus. And it's clear that Mary's immediate response to discovering the empty tomb is that the disciples must be told. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. As a side note, I think it's interesting that she ran to Peter. Three times he denied the Lord. 
But clearly the other followers of Jesus still regarded him as the leader of the disciples. John himself is there, but he identifies himself as the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she tells them both that Jesus has been moved. Someone has taken him. She's assuming there's been a grave robbery. Now, you could look at this scene and you could think, you know, we have some time here. Let's look around. Perhaps she went to the wrong tomb. But this isn't a time for cold, rational logic. And we misunderstand the situation if we think like that. Mary is essentially in shock. She loved her Lord, and it was a bitter tragedy for her that he'd been nailed to the cross and killed. The bottom had dropped out of her world. And she got a little solace by doing the only thing left for her, making sure that Jesus was given a decent and reverent burial, and now that's been taken away from her. And so she runs to Peter and John. And so we see John at the tomb. The startling news from Mary triggers a race to the tomb so they could see for themselves what happens. Uh, John is writing the story, and he gets there first. But he stops at the tomb and waits to go in. Apparently, even from outside the tomb, it's obviously uh, obvious that uh, something very unusual has taken place. Perhaps he just hesitated to enter the tomb, not knowing what was or was not in there. Perhaps out of respect, he waited for Peter. We don't know. The text doesn't say why he waited. It just says he waited. He stayed outside. But that doesn't stop him from trying to look in and figure out what was going on. Verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Peter, however, as is usual, is not so timid. And so we see Peter at the tomb, and he doesn't hesitate. He goes straight into the tomb. You can almost see him, you know, John, get out of the way. You know, I'm going to find out what's going on. And so there, verses 6 and 7, he sees the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And there we have this seemingly insignificant mention of a face cloth. A small cloth lying there, separate from the others, apparently having been neatly folded. These may mean nothing other than Jesus was careful. However, the Greek word translated here as face cloth has been used earlier in the description of Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead. Back in John 11, it said, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The only difference here is that when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, he had to have someone help him remove the grave cloths. But when Jesus rose, he needed no such help. He simply left the cloths behind as he rose into his resurrection life. Second reason the seemingly insignificant detail is mentioned here is it describes a very neat and orderly scene not the mess that would have been the result of grave robbers defiling the tomb. The third reason for uh, the seemingly insignificant detail, is like so many other details in John, is just further evidence of an eyewitness telling the story. And apparently they're just standing there, 
taking it all in, trying to understand uh, what happens when the text shifts back to John, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It very clearly says here that as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. However, we have this interesting note at the end of verse 8, that John saw and believed. He didn't fully understand what happened. He couldn't fully comprehend the resurrection yet. He just didn't know all the details. And yet he saw and believed. And I read that and I thought, how many times do we today need to fully understand, fully comprehend, know all the details before we'll dare believe? We often live by that cold, rational logic that simply didn't matter to the Apostle John. He entered the tomb, he saw and believed. Jesus was not there. Obviously, he hadn't been stolen. Therefore, he must be alive. Can you imagine him thinking of this some uh, 60 years later as he's writing this gospel? The thought of having actually seen the empty tomb must have given him a sense of awe. And it must have given him a sense of peace. Jesus was a real man. He died a real death. And he really did rise again from the dead on the third day. And that makes all the difference. I wonder, however, how John must have felt when he discovered what happened at the tomb while he and Peter returned to their homes because they completely missed the calling of Mary. They had to be told later. Remember, Mary was one of the great followers of Jesus there. This is Mary Magdalene that we're talking about, not Mary the mother of Jesus. And so we see the calling of Mary starting at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary must have arrived back at the tomb after Peter and John had been there, or perhaps she just stayed behind after they left. Either way, Mary is left alone outside the tomb, weeping. We're left with no doubts as to the depth of her grief. She couldn't, uh, as well as the others, couldn't fully understand what happened. All she knew is that Jesus had been crucified 
died and was buried. And still weeping, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Can you imagine the shock to her system as she saw not Jesus, but two angels? Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. So we have this wonderful story of Mary and the angels. And we have the angels asking Mary a question, verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And while the angels are implying with their question that there's no need for tears, Mary just can't understand. She takes their question at face value and gives the obvious answer. Jesus is not here. Now, if it were us, we'd probably, you know, reply, why do you think I'm crying? Jesus is gone. But perhaps one isn't so sarcastic with angels. In any case, Mary's strong attachment to Jesus and the depth of her feeling at what she can only see as a complete disaster comes out in her words, they have taken away my Lord. What a statement of faith that is. This is still the only possibility that she can understand at this moment. However, I think the angels must have had some sort of angelic sense of humor. Because apparently Jesus is standing right there the whole time, right behind Mary. In fact, that St. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, suggests that at this point, perhaps one of the angels motioned for Mary to turn around. And so she did. And standing there was Jesus. And so we see Mary and the gardener. Jesus speaks to Mary, and she doesn't recognize him, at least not at first. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. It is possible that she didn't recognize him because her eyes were full of tears, although tears don't normally prevent us from recognizing someone we know well. But keep in mind that there are a number of times in Scripture when the risen Christ wasn't initially recognized by his followers, most notably on the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus puts to Mary the same question the angels had. Woman, why are you weeping? Then he asks, whom are you seeking? And the second question, I think, is of more significance as Mary is looking for a thing, a body, where she should have been looking for a person, Jesus. And John tells us that Mary supposed him to be the gardener. She apparently simply jumped to this conclusion, and jumping to conclusions can lead us wildly astray. God doesn't tell us why she thought she was talking to the gardener, but he's already told us at the end of the last chapter that the tomb was in a garden, and who else would appear early in the morning in a garden but the gardener? So she asked him if he took the body. She's still searching for answers. Jesus' body is gone, and she wants it back. And since the gardener is there, she's going to ask him. But she couldn't have been more surprised at his answer, for she's about to see Jesus. And that brings us to Mary and her Lord. There comes this moment of recognition. 
And it's beautifully told. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. One word, which remade her world, transformed her life forever after. And that word was her own name. It's a memorable confirmation of the personal nature of our Lord's dealing with his people. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and they recognize his voice. We know that from John 10. Uh, The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out when he has brought out all his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. This immediately dispels any thought of a gardener. For it shows that he knew who she was. The text tells us that Mary turned and spoke to him. Apparently, she had turned away uh, from him, looked back at the tomb. After all, she just thought it was the gardener. Her interest is over here. But now she hears her name, and she recognizes the voice. And where there had been nothing but darkness and despair, there is now sheer, unadulterated joy. And she reaches for Jesus and hugs him and clings to him, and then he stops her. And again, the Greek here is difficult. It's a present imperative with a negative, which means don't keep on doing what you're doing. And you can imagine Jesus sort of gently peeling her off with a laugh and a smile and holding her at arm's length so he can talk to her because he has a mission for her. Verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a lot of discussion as to what exactly Jesus meant here. But it seems to be, once again, we have a comparison to the other resurrection in John, that of Lazarus. And where Lazarus was raised from the dead to resume his old life, Jesus has risen into a new life, nothing like the old one he'd left behind. And this new life involved ascending to the Father. He didn't want Mary to misunderstand. He didn't want her to think that things were going to be like as they were before. Things now are going to be very different. And the message uh, for her to take to the disciples is interesting. He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This way of putting it unites Jesus to his followers He says, my father and your father, my God and your God, but he doesn't say our God, as there is still a difference between his relationship to God the Father and theirs. And the terms of the message are arresting. I mean, this is a message of victory. Jesus has conquered death. The king lives and continues in his reign. The initiative has been wrenched from the hands of Caiaphas and Pilate, an assumption, the uh, ascension, which is the assumption of authority at the right hand of the Father, is now his to take. And so Mary is faithful to her Lord. She does what he asks her to do. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene, an outcast, and an oppressed woman whose life was dramatically changed by Jesus. It's a woman who had sinned much and suffered much and been forgiven much and loved much. And to her is given the great honor of being the first one in all the world 
to see the risen Christ. Think about that. Nothing in history can be proven the way we prove something in a lab. It's a matter of piling up the historical evidence. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more fully attested than most other events of ancient history that we seem to take for granted. If you don't short-circuit the process with a philosophical bias against the possibility of a miracle, then the resurrection of Jesus has the most evidence for it. The problem is, however, is that many people do short-circuit the process, short-circuit the investigation. Instead of doing the hard work of answering the tough historical questions and following those answers wherever they lead, they bail out with the simple-minded objection that miracles are impossible. The Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, bishop in, in England, gives the following response to those who won't face the challenge of the resurrection honestly. He says, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb or, and the meetings and the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. Now, many people have said and written that last year, 2007, was the year of the atheist, as militant atheism made the rounds with quite a few best-selling, poorly written books. As a nation now weaned on the Da Vinci Code, we've become skeptical of religion. Was Jesus married? Did he really claim to be God? What if he didn't really die? What's the church trying to hide? And try to settle their argument with a blanket statement. The resurrection just couldn't happen. And then dare you to disagree, knowing that if you do, they will mock you at best as a complete imbecile and at worst as highly delusional. But let's not forget that first century people felt exactly the same way. They found the resurrection just as inconceivable as you might. The only way anyone embraced the resurrection back then was by letting the evidence challenge and change their worldview, their view of what was actually possible. They would have had just as much trouble with the claims of the resurrection as anyone today. And yet the evidence, both of the eyewitness accounts and the changed lives of Christ's followers, was overwhelming. If there was no resurrection, Christians would derive no comfort from this faith, let alone be willing to die for it. Easter faith is nothing if the event Easter is based on never happened. The Apostle Paul states it as forcefully as possible, 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, each year at Easter, 
I get to preach on the resurrection. And this year I want to say to any of my skeptical friends that even if you can't believe in the resurrection, you should want it to be true. Because the evidence isn't just historical. And it isn't just intellectual. The real evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sitting all around you. And while you may not be able to explain the resurrection, there is little doubt that for Christians, the resurrection explains us. And the truth of the resurrection is evident on the faces of those who've been changed by it. The church as a whole, and this church in particular, and I'm talking about you, is filled with people whose lives used to be lived in the dump. There are people here whose lives were trashed, whose reputations were garbage, and who were unable to recognize the filth that surrounded them. That's the majority of you. One of the great advantages of being a pastor is I get to hear all your stories. There are others here who come from privileged backgrounds, but filled their lives with garbage simply because they could afford to. There are people here who found their uh, meaning in money and stuff and wasted a lot of years before they realized that none of it helped. Because pig slop is pig slop, even if you're eating it with a silver spoon. Many of us were living in a river of discarded humanity, floating along, out of control, with nowhere to go. And the analogy to the Christian life is clear. We've been discarded by our previous owner, Satan, thrown into the muck and mire by our sinfulness and our futility, and then along came Jesus, trolling through the deepest, darkest recesses of this world, down in the muck and mire of everyday life, until his eyes and his hands found us. And he lifted us up from the mud and cleaned us off and proceeds to make something beautiful of our lives. It isn't because we deserve it, because we don't. And it isn't necessarily because we asked for it, because some of us didn't. It's because he sees in us through his divine eyes what we can be, and he delights in changing us according to his will. I know every week, and this week in particular, there are people who are discouraged and despairing, afraid to look in the mirror for fear of the horror they see when they look into their own souls. Sadly, many of these people are actually believers who struggle to accept that God loves them, and he's already engaged in the process of turning them into a beautiful work of art fit to be found on the streets of heaven. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe today is one of those days you feel like trash. Just remember, because of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has salvaged you and is shaping you into a unique and beautiful work of his art. The curse is over. The dawn is here. Death has been conquered. 
Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, it is hard for us to understand that you love us on our worst days just as much as you love us on our best days. You love us when we look and act and talk and think like trash. And you love us when we pretend we're on the top of the world. That your love for us never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Father, and that love was proved for us by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus is who he said he is. He does what he said he does. He continues to act and work in our world and in our lives and in our families, in our homes. And sometimes his word work is difficult. He has to change us, and sometimes that hurts. There are some of us, occasionally he claims as his own to come home with him, and we have difficulty letting go. And yet, Lord, we have this truth of the resurrection of Christ. This is true. Our faith is real. Our Christianity, however meager, however weak, is real. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we leave, we would be consumed with this idea that the resurrection makes all the difference in my life today this week, this month. It makes my life worth living and it gives meaning and purpose to anything that I do, to anything that anyone in this room does. Lord, help us to see the significance that Jesus Christ lives now and forever. The right hand of the Father. He lives and reigns now and forever. Amen.